Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Distributed Morphs. Today, we're talking with Adam Usishkin of the University of Arizona on Templatic Morphology, primarily in the Semitic languages. We're going to talk about its theoretic implications, along with some uh, experimental work on how we can explore aspects of Templatic Morphology. It's a really fascinating conversation, um, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, hi, Adam. Thank you so much for uh, uh, agreeing to be here today. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so, you know, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is this concept of templatic morphology. This is something that you've worked a lot on. I know it's not the only thing you work on, but um, could you just help us understand what is meant when people are, are say, you know, we're talking about when they talk about uh, templatic morphology and how that kind of differs from the other types of morphology that we we talk about uh, more frequently? Sure thing. So um, I think there's actually kind of two broadish classes of templatic morphology, and my work really is just about one of them. So I'll just describe the other one and dispense with it because it's super interesting and I know next to nothing about it. Um, that so is you, totally, totally fair. <laughs> um, you know, you've got languages like Athabascan languages, for example, where like the pieces that make up a verb, um, you know, there's the verbal root, but then there's all this stuff that comes before it. And there's all these various um, morphosyntactic markers that, you know, have to go in particular, particular slots, for example. So that's one kind of templatic morphology. And there's so much interesting work on that. And um, fortunately, unfortunately, none of it is mine, but I do want to sure. mention it because I've had people come and talk to me about templatic morphology when that's what they were interested in. And then I was kind of embarrassed. Um, right. The other kind of templatic morphology, I think it's a little easier to understand if we contrast it with things that are slightly more familiar. So let me lead with an example of non-templatic morphology. Um, and, you know, this will be familiar to your listeners who've taken no linguistics and who've taken some linguistics. So hopefully this like is an answer that everybody can understand. Um, if we think about a language like English, um, English generally has um, sort of really nice regular linear morphology. Other languages like this are like Turkish, which is an extremely great example of it. Spanish is maybe a little bit more on the English side of things. And in those languages, when you form words, um, it's pretty straightforward. Like the internal structure of complex words is fairly easily discernible. So like on the first day of my interlinguistics class, one of the things that I like to do is, um, you know, give people examples from lots of languages and then come back to English. So, you know, in English, when we make plurals out of singular nouns in terms of regular plural formation, um, it's really easy to teach your day one intro students that to make a plural, you add S to the end of a noun. Um, and then maybe on the second day, you can talk about morphophonological alternations um, like voicing agreement, which makes English plurals, you know, actually a little more interesting to linguists. Um, sure. But there's, there's lots of ways that morphological composition can be um, different and in some ways maybe thought of as more complicated. And so, um, you know, when we talk about English plural formation or complex word formation in, a lang in an agglutinative language like Turkish, um, usually you, ba you basically have like some grammatical rule that says, take this morpheme and put it at the end of a stem, right? And so you're looking very closely at edges of 
some morphological unit, and those edges are sort of like these add-on sites for morphemes. Um, and you can actually get one step more complicated in a language like English, where instead of putting things at the edge, you can put things in the middle, right? So English has this sort of fun expletive infixation process, right? So infixation is a sort of different flavor of that kind of morphological composition where you put stuff on the inside of a stem. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Megan and I talked about that. And when she yeah. visited where, where we were talking about, you know, when, in that context, we were talking about how that it, it kind of helps illustrate, you know, the it, uh, internal knowledge that we all have of um, the rules of the language. But it, yeah. I think it also was a really nice illustration of the point you're making right now. Cool. And, and I think I'm glad you brought that up because um, the, in terms of the complexity of the rules, you know, in English, where we haven't really sat down in high school English class to learn how to do expletive and fixation, but, you know, native speakers have these very strong intuitions. Um, and so it can reveal a lot about, about exactly what you're talking about. Um, so with templatic morphology, languages that have, so languages with this other kind of templatic morphology, um, their morphology sort of directly associates a particular shape, a template, with some morphological category. So if a language, you know, has gone down that road, um, then all of a sudden the forms that words have to respond, you know, in kind of that kind of constraint. Like, you can think of a, a shape being like, okay, if you're a verb with this kind of argument structure, then these are the vowels that you're going to have, right? And so... Um, you're sort of changing stuff on the inside of a stem. Um, and so the best known example of this, of course, is um, the Semitic group of languages. That's a group of languages in the larger Afroasiatic family. Um, and a lot of the Afroasiatic groups besides Semitic have things that look a lot like templatic morphology, but Semitic is where it's really, really um, apparent. Right. So as a result of this, like, when you talk about lexical content and the expression of contentful meaning, the burden of expression for that kind of meaning falls to the consonants um, because the vowels are doing a lot of work to give you information about morphosyntax um, and other grammatical information. But, um, you know, in a canonical case of a complex Semitic word, you can take any content word, figure out what its consonantal root is. Um, and if you know that and you know what the template that they occur in is in that word, then you know a lot about the word's meaning, its grammatical properties, etc. And so um, the thing that you see over and over again in every Semitic language pretty much is this notion of the consonantal root, which goes hand in hand with these templatic requirements um, as a way of um, it's a really good descriptive and explanatory tool for why words look the way that they look in these languages. Yeah. So we really have two, I mean, just to kind of sum up what you just said, we really have two really kind of fundamentally different versions of what, a uh, of this term templatic morphology. Mm -hmm. Um, right. one of which is, uh, it really does rely on this sort of additive morphology that we've seen, uh, that we're kind of probably more, most familiar with, unless we, happen to uh, already speak a Semitic language or right, uh, right. an Afro-Asiatic language where this other type of templatic morphology really does seem to really show up a lot where we get this cons consonantal root and this, yeah. uh, um, this, other, this other template that, that applies across it. Right. Very cool.
Um, yeah. And I'll just say a couple things. Is that okay if I, Oh yeah, absolutely. Please. So like the, um, it's really interesting. I think from, you know, all the way from like the intro to linguistic student to like, you know, the died in the wool researcher who's like in search of the truth about how these things work, because, um, I think once you recognize that like templates are a thing, um, you have a lot of work to do to figure out like, are they, are they a thing in the lexicon? Are they a thing in the grammar? Um, it's really complicated and there's a lot of different answers that people have given to those questions. Well, well, that's kind of where I want to go next, which is, um, you know, what can these things tell us? So, you know, what does templatic morphology or, the, you know, the type of temp- templates that we see in primarily in Semitic, what can this, you know, how, how can this help us get a better understanding of like maybe the mental representation of words or of morphology, at least in your view? Um, so I think they really help us get a better understanding of, of mental representations because they can, they really help us figure out like how, how abstract can things be? So, um, the really cool thing about these templates or these consonantal roots is that in and of themselves, they, they never occur in isolation. Um, you know, if you take like a language like Arabic or Hebrew or Maltese, like there's no word that by itself consists of just three consonants. Um, and likewise, there's no word that just consists of a template. Um, you can't just pronounce like two vowels and mean anything, right? So um, the morphemes are both of the type that we call bound morphemes. And in order for in order for us to like develop a good theory about these things, you know, we're we're sort of postulating the primitive elements that a native speaker you know stores in their mind and uses to both. perceive and produce words. And so um, the fact that these morphemes are only, that they're bound morphemes, um, I think that gives us a lot of interesting, it raises a lot of interesting questions about what can be stored. Um, I think it also is interesting because templatic morphology works by imposing, you know, some kind of shape or restriction on what a possible word can look like in terms of its um, like it's phonological and prosodic properties when it's, a, you know, in a certain lexical category. And so maybe this gives, maybe there's benefits to the speaker or to the grammatical system that is the architecture of the grammatical system built around that system, because the form of the word can directly convey information about the word, even out of context, right? Um, and I don't mean to say that languages that aren't in this group don't have those kinds of regularities, right? Like, so I'm, sure you can find statistical generalizations about this lexical category or that lexical category in English, for example, which doesn't really have Semitic style templatic morphology. Um, it's just that with templatic morphology, it's a bit more rigid and generalizable across the whole lexicon. And so um, it really it really imposes strong, strong restrictions on the forms that words can take. Um, it also has ramifications for things in the grammar and things like productivity. Um, and, and I think that that's really interesting because you can ask the same kind of question you would ask about any kind of morpheme, which is, you know, are native speakers able to apply it productively to novel forms, for instance? And a lot of the evidence from languages like Semitic is that yes, indeed, um, there are productive templatic strategies in these languages. 
Very cool. So one of the other things, you know, looking at sort of the the course of your sort of research life is that you've had like multiple views about how the sort of the word, you know, the, the, the template sort of works within these languages. And would you mind just telling us a little bit about like your sort of your own sort of personal research journey and how um, you've sort of changed your your views on the, the role of sort of mental storage and templates over time? Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it because um, I think it's a nice illustration of like, you know, what kinds of things do we bring to bear on how we um, change our mind or don't change our mind over time? So for me, or this how, is my and, and how science is done and all of that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, it's interesting, though, because I've certainly had people challenge me before when they, they've said, like, wait a minute, in this talk, you just argued for X, but like, you spent 10 years arguing not X, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I, I would hope that people don't feel let down when I do that, but rather that, like, I'm doing it because I've brought new data to bear on the question. Um, it, exactly as you said, right, this is sort of how science works. So I think it's important to continually explore different hypotheses from a number of different angles and perspectives and using different methods. And that's sort of, for me, what my journey has been been like. So to get a little more concrete when i was in graduate school um one of the predominant views at that time was that at least at some level all languages were thought to be quite similar to each other and so i sort of thought like well there's no other language with consonantal roots the way that semitic has seems to have them so in that earlier work like starting with the work around my dissertation and for a few years after that um i sort of chose to explore the hypothesis that um, number one, the consonantal root was epiphenomenal, that it was not a primitive item that was stored in the lexicon, not not a possible ingredient in word formation. And so, of course, that leaves all sorts of things to be explained. And my job, therefore, was to explain them from a kind of word-based approach where the word of the stem was taken to be the primitive element of the lexicon. And instead of using um, like rigid templates that these roots get associated to. Um, I argued instead that the templatic effects that are found in Semitic are just a sort of confluence of constraints or other mechanisms that we need anyway. But in Semitic, they happen to have a particular, like a language particular combination of these mechanisms. Um, and, you know, it was not a perfect theory, but it did a pretty good job. And there were certainly some data that couldn't be explained um, without access to like the stem or the word. Um, mm -hmm. And then in 2001, I came to the University of Arizona to start my job here. And um, the nice thing about being here was that I was surrounded by all kinds of linguists. There was just a much greater diversity of kinds of thought about these questions. And so my colleagues who are very open-minded we're really encouraging, you know, take a look at this question from an experimental point of view. Um, so I did. I thought, okay, you know, on the one hand, we've got the classic root-based approach to Semitic, um, the root and template approach. And on the other hand, I have my my little idea from my dissertation that says, nah, these roots aren't real. Um, maybe I thought maybe I could try to collect some experimental data that would allow me to adjudicate between those two, you know, those two points of view. And I have to say, like, 
I don't mean to make those two points of view sound like they're completely mutually incompatible because, you know, there's evidence for all these things, right? Right. But I was really, yeah, I was interested in, like, the processing question. Um, and I'm certainly not the first person to do that. So I'm not claiming credit for, like, coming <laughs> up with the idea to, you know, ch test language processing in Semitic. Um, that's not original with me, obviously. Um, but it has been quite a fruitful research path for me. And the cool thing about it, um, which comes back to your question, is um, in pretty much all of the experimental experimental evidence that I've gathered over the last like 15 years or so, um, there's plenty of evidence that the consonantal root is, is really a crucial ingredient for word recognition. Um, and so that definitely supports the classic view over the view that I used to believe in. Um, but it also turns out, and this is the cool thing for me about doing experimental work, um, that a lot of the evidence also seems to support a much more nuanced view of things. Um, and I really like that that's the case because it shows us both the limitations um, of, you know, limiting your methods might not be a great idea. You might not actually, like, shine the light in the right place to see that a question is more complicated than you thought. Um, and of course, like that's great because it means that there's more work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, uh, such a great answer. Um, I want to talk now about um, part of this work that you're doing. Uh, a lot of the, you know in this experimental uh, area, but you've been working most recently uh, on a language uh, Maltese, which uh, you know uh, I think a lot of uh, the listeners have probably. You know, I don't want to say that they haven't heard of Maltese, but I think, you know, <laughs> right. most people are going to be familiar with languages like Hebrew and uh, Arabic, but Maltese may not be as familiar uh, to us. And there's a lot of really cool things happening in Maltese uh, for this question. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that work and what makes it so interesting for sort of bearing on this question. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll probably have to shut me up because um, Maltese, <laughs> Maltese is my total obsession. So like if I just like won't shut up, make me shut up or just stop recording, pull the plug. Um, <laughs> also, I should make it clear, especially if any of my Maltese linguist friends hear this, I should be very clear from the beginning that I'm embarrassed that I don't speak the language. Um, it's part of what makes the language so interesting is that everybody in Malta is a bilingual speaker of both Maltese and English. Um, there's a special variety of English called Maltese English. And so, like, I went to Malta really excited to do the work the first time and also excited to, like, learn a new Semitic language. And everybody there was like, what are you talking about? Like, we're not going to waste our time trying to get you to learn Maltese because we all speak English. <laughs> so I, I can I can have, like, very basic baby conversations for, like, 10 seconds before I run out of um before I run out of, you know, <laughs> you can but, like ask where the bathroom is and yeah, yeah, say exactly. that you're, you know, say hello and goodbye and things like right. that. Right. Exactly. Um, so the bilingualism uh, is, it's just a baked in property that exists there. And that I think makes it, it makes the study of either Maltese or Maltese English even more interesting. So um, I was, I was first turned on to the language by my very first PhD student, Alina Twist. And um, so she was a graduate student at the University of Arizona, and she'd been through Malta during a summer trip to Europe. And it was just sort of 
um, a place she ended up because it sounded interesting. And it turned out that um, it really grabbed her attention because she got into linguistics to study language contact. And Maltese is like this amazing example of language contact. So Maltese is like this gem of a language. For a linguist, it is it is like candy. Um, you've got the Semitic language. Um, so Maltese is, it's most closely related to the varieties of Arabic from North Africa. And um, the history is super fascinating. So actually, Maltese is what's left, we think, I mean, what what people smarter than me who study this know, seem to know, um, is that Maltese is what's left of the variety of Arabic that used to be spoken on the island of Sicily. And then after the Norman conquest, which, by the way, resulted in English becoming a contact language, right? Um, yes. Maltese became a contact language. So you had all these speakers from Sicily who were relocated to Malta and um, that was sort of the point at which like the Islamic conquest was waning in that part of Europe. And at that point, Malta became European. It became owned by like every empire in Europe for the next nearly thousand years. And so it was kind of cut off from uh, its, you know, close relatives linguistically. Um, it's really interesting because it's a very European culture. The identity is very European and it's also incredibly Catholic. Um and that's just also linguistically cool because so much of the religious vocabulary in Maltese actually comes from the Arabic stratum. So, like, I think that that's just super fascinating. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and it's like a total miracle that the language survived. Um, I think it came close to not surviving. And then when Malta became a British colony in the 1930s, the, the Brits were trying to sort of lessen the influence that Italian had in Malta and in order to do so. And so they wanted to like demote Italian and what they did to do that was they promoted Maltese. Um, mm. So it's not the usual colonial colonialism story as far as the language goes. And I think that that's kind of cool. Um, the language is a really crucial aspect of Maltese identity now. Um, so it's not endangered, but it's tiny. It's got 400,000 speakers. It's vastly understudied, very few resources for linguists. Um, but it's vocabulary. So coming back to why it's interesting for linguists, um, its lexicon is basically half Semitic and half Indo-European because of all that contact. And it's got both grammars, too. And they somehow managed to coexist in the same language. So for me, it's been this incredible testing ground for like hypotheses about the nature of the lexicon and how the lexicon interacts with the grammar. So I first went there in 2004 thinking that I was going to like prove my dissertation theory right by running an experiment in a foreign country, my very first time running an experiment. And um, it was such an epic failure completely. <laughs> my, it was, it was totally my own fault, right? By the way, like, despite the best efforts of my Maltese linguist friends, um, I did not really succeed the first time. Um, but since then we've sort of like built a nice system and I feel like we've come a long way. The language, every time I, every time I come up with an idea and I test it, I get what I think is a cool result. And then like 15 more ideas to test. Oh um, yeah. It's just, it's amazing. So like, you might think, oh, Adam's about to tell us that in this language that's only half Semitic, right, there's no set, they don't need those consonantal roots. Um, well, it turns out <laughs> that it actually seems to be the case that 
native speakers of Maltese, if they're if they're like processing a Semitic word, they really care about the root. Um, the root gives them a big cue to identifying what the word is. And it's really interesting, right? Like if the roots are used as such a cue, then how does that work for the other half of the lexicon? Um, there's some recent work I've done that seems to show that in some ways, the Semitic and the non-Semitic lexicon don't really talk to each other, right? So like in the non-Semitic words, the consonants don't really help with word recognition. But like I said, for Semitic words, they do. Um, but you can't really say that the two halves don't ever talk to each other because you have loan words from Italian that have kind of been integrated into the Semitic morphology. Um, and so there's, there is this interesting like interface between them. And I don't really know much about it besides that. And that it's actually, oh, there's a really interesting question. There's like at least a career's worth of stuff to think about it um, with, with just this one language. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just like, it's a super exciting um, language to work on and it's a super amazing place to be able to go do field work. I feel really, really fortunate um, that at least when like the, the planet is not experiencing a pandemic in normal times, um, I would be gearing up for my next trip. You know, I'd be leaving next week to go spend three weeks there um, to run my next series of experiments. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm bummed that I can't, but. I'm always jealous of the photos you post of like the like crystal blue ocean and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, while you're while you're running experiments, you know. Yeah. It is know. a beautiful place. I mean, I could have chosen like Siberia. Um, yeah. for my field work, <laughs> right? Um yeah, but I chose a place with a beach. Um <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, one thing that you you kind of got me thinking about is, you know, you mentioned English and like English as a contact language and this, mm -hmm. you know, obviously Maltese has a much like the, the split in that lexicon is much deeper, but, you know, there's it's considerable evidence that English, it's also has a split lexicon. Yeah. And I think there's so much work that needs to be done morphologically um, uh, on like these languages of uh, that d are derived through contact about how do these native speakers hold on to this these mm -hmm. these notions of a split lexicon and right, for so right. long? I mean, yeah, for yeah, future linguists out there, like you know, it's something to think about. I think absolutely, and it's also the kind of thing where you have probably a real disconnect between whatever native speakers think they know or think they're aware of with regard to that, right? Versus what automatic processes are going on in their mind. Every oh, time absolutely. They, you know, encounter these things. And then the ramifications, of course, that that has for, you know, the nature of the things that you store in your lexicon. Right. Yeah. Um, and I agree, like future linguists have a lot of exciting, uh, a lot of exciting questions to think about with regard to that. Um, so on that note, I, I guess I just want to ask if there's any other uh, final comments or anything you want to leave us with or. Um... If I should just thank you again for uh, the really fascinating things you had to say today. Um, I mean, I don't think I have any deep thoughts, but I guess I would say just sort of like what if I've learned anything from my experience doing fieldwork in Malta, um, scientifically, you know, always have an open mind. Um, you know, when you find something you don't expect, um, don't give up, but, you know, use it, run with it, see how far it goes. 
And um, just on the sort of like logistic and logistic side of things, given what I said about my first time being there being an epic failure, right? <laughs> um, uh, don't give up, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. There's always there's always work to be done, and there's always going to be people who are interested in it and who want to hear about it. And fieldwork, fieldwork is hard, but fieldwork on an understudied language uh, is so valuable um, because you're contributing to, and I'm not saying, I don't mean to say like my work is so important, but I feel like the contributions that that kind of work makes are, are really at least twofold, right? You're contributing to the general body of knowledge, but you're also providing resources for the communities that work on that language or that speak that language. And I think for small languages, that's, it's, it's really important, right? They're just as valid linguistically as big languages. Um, and I think that um, people should really embrace looking closely at these smaller languages. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much, Adam. It was an absolute delight to be able to talk with you today. My great pleasure. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And it makes me so excited, um, especially in these times of like, kind of, you know, limited ability to do stuff. This is really inspiring to get to talk. So thank you. I want to thank Adam again for joining us today. I've gotten a few email requests for uh, specific topics that I can cover on the, on the podcast. I am working on getting those topics covered. I uh, love hearing from you guys. And if there is a particular uh, topic that you would like me to cover, a particular uh, question that you don't think uh, we answered very well on the uh, podcast, uh, please just uh, feel free to email me. Um, uh, let me know and I will do my best to, uh, uh, answer those questions, get those topics covered, um, and so forth. Um, I hope you all are safe right now in this, uh, uh, difficult time we're going through. Um, and I wish you all good health.